me invite you to turn in your Bibles, note not to 1 Thessalonians, but to 1 Timothy. It's a pleasing sound hearing pages turn, and it's a relatively rare sound when you think of the history of the church that throughout most of time, God's people didn't have the great advantage and blessing of holding a copy of the scriptures. What a tremendous thing, not simply because of illiteracy. In fact, in the first century, about 80% of at least males in Judea could read, but just the sheer cost of having somebody write by hand, try to pay someone sometime to write the whole Bible for you by hand, see what they want to charge you. It's a fabulous thing that God has given us his word and the opportunity to have a copy of it with us. Now, for the past four months or so, whether in the morning or the evening, we've been working our way through the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And that method of preaching is sometimes referred to as Lectio Continua, which means to just move through, to continue through a book of the Bible. It became very common during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. But it is not the only legitimate way of selecting a text or preaching from the Word. You find all throughout the book of Acts what are called occasional sermons. You think of Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Most of Jesus' sermons that are recorded are occasional in nature. This makes a lot of sense. He is itinerant. He's moving from place to place. So they're not working through a book as they go. Lectio Continua is not the only legitimate way to approach the scriptures. But it helps, if we're going to be occasional, to have a very clear occasion for that sermon. And the occasion that draws us this morning to look at 1 Timothy is the providential concurrence of July 4th and the Lord's Day. Maybe you think there are seven days in the week that this would happen one in seven times. It's not the case. The last time that July 4th, the celebration of our nation's independence, occurred on the Lord's Day was in 2010. That's over 500 Lord's Days ago. And so we have an opportunity this morning to focus upon our role as citizens, not only of Christ's kingdom, but also as subjects of what Romans 13 calls the powers that be. We belong, by God's providence, to one or another civil power. And here, then, we focus upon our role. Look with me at the Word of God at verse 1. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who himself was given as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that this morning you 
Speak to us through your word. We ask that you would apply it in such a way that we would not only believe more and more that you are a God who answers prayer, but that we would desire to pray. Lord, it's for you, ultimately, to transform us. It doesn't come from ourselves. And yet you do use means, and even this prayer now, we thank you in advance, Lord. We believe that you will work and grow us by your grace. For we ask in the impeccable name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All God's people pray. Amen. The Lord clearly calls us to pray. If you are familiar with the Bible at all, you are well aware of that fact. Approximately a hundred times in the New Testament, there is the example or the command to pray. And roughly double that in the Old Testament, which makes sense. The Old Testament is about twice as long. God clearly calls us to pray. But there is the question, why? Why does God call us to pray? Because in one sense, we might acknowledge that he could as easily simply grant the gifts that he desires to give to us. Why have us pray? We don't believe that prayer changes God. He is eternal. What he has decreed shall come to pass. Why then pray if he has purposed all things? And there are any number of general reasons which could be given for that. Why do we pray? We pray, for instance, because in prayer, the Lord is humbling us to acknowledge that we are dependent creatures. And it's one of the ways that we acknowledge before him, he is the creator, we are creations, we do not have the source of all power in ourselves. And so it's a way of humbly acknowledging his power and authority, his ability to give and provide. Also, it is a way of readying us for thanks. It's in the act of prayer that the Holy Spirit is working in us, preparing us, so that when he answers, we say, it was you, Lord, who did this thing. Just this week, I was speaking with a member of this church, and he mentioned to me, I think a wonderful habit that he has formed, a habit of praying with one of his loved ones almost every day, he said, for the Lord to provide safety as they both have long commutes to and from work. And so maybe each morning or each evening, they're praying for that. And then just this week, that loved one was in a car accident and their car was totaled. First, I do believe that we should say the Lord answered that prayer. We should not adopt a mentality, well, He would have done it either way. You don't know that. Why are we praying except to believe he answers our prayers? Now, sometimes he does great things apart from prayer. But when there's a clear relationship, acknowledge it. But what was so wonderful as I spoke with this member is that he said that one of his first thoughts was, thank you, Lord, for answering that prayer. The Lord readies us through prayer. And then a third reason, a general reason, is because he has providentially ordained both the ends and the means. If he's ordained you to be nourished, then he will arrange also that you should put some food in your mouth and swallow it. He ordains both the ends and the means. And so the God who ordains the things that we asked for in prayer also ordained that we should pray and to respond to those prayers. Many other reasons could be given for prayer, but this morning we're going to focus in particular upon why the Lord calls us 
to pray for all people, and then some people in particular. And then also how we are to pray for those people. These are the basic ideas. It's a sermon essentially on prayer. But as we look through this, we're going to look at this passage under three main headings. And they are these. First, we're going to look, as I said, at kinds of prayer, and our text mentions four. Then we'll look at the kinds of people for whom we pray. And then third, we'll look at one kind in particular. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2. And here we have a list of kinds of prayer. Our first heading. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. In the context here, these are all forms of prayer. What is the difference? Some distinctions can be made from the outset. Two of them are fairly obvious. The word prayers here, the second word, I'll confess to you, I'm not sure why it's placed second in the order, is the most general term for prayer that the Greek language had. And it really refers to any kind of speech directed to God whatsoever. It's the most general term. And then thanksgiving, if you were here last week, we focused on that kind of prayer in particular. It doesn't need much description of what it means, but it's simply to express our gratitude for all of God's benefits. But then what about these other two? Supplications and intercessions. Children, when you pray, do you supplicate? Do you intercede? Well, it helps. You probably do. But it helps to know what these words mean. Broadly speaking, the word supplication is used in the New Testament to speak of any request that God would provide something. So sometimes we pray and we're not asking God to provide anything at all. We're simply thanking him. We're talking to him. But a supplication generally is a request to provide. The word intercession, however, usually has overtones of interceding, standing between other people. So now you think of the request you make on behalf of others, not simply yourself. There's an example of this. I don't ask that you turn there. It's very brief. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. So intercession has overtones of standing between others, whether praying for God to reconcile them in a, in a state of sin to himself. Think in the book of Job. It says that Job, a godly man, interceded for his children after every time they got together to have a party. They'd have dinner parties, it says, and after they would, he would always pray in case they had offended God in some way. He's interceding. But on the other hand, you should be aware, this word intercession that Paul uses here, the same term, it's used in other ways too. For instance, our same epistle, chapter 4, verse 5, this same term is used for the prayer that you would pray over food. You don't have to intercede for your food as though it has offended God, right? And I say that because there is a danger of putting too fine a point on the difference between each of the words Paul is using and trying to make them so distinct, so different, that some churches have, in fact, created liturgies, orders of service, where they move through each of these supplications, prayers, thanksgivings, intercession. 
Calvin, uh, John Calvin, 1500s was much more modest. He says of this, what is the difference between three out of the four kinds which Paul enumerates? I own that I do not thoroughly understand. It's all right to not grasp exactly what the overlap is because this much is clear. By stacking all of these different kinds of prayers, the Lord is making it abundantly clear to you. He desires all kinds of prayer to be prayed. That's the essential point, that we not limit our prayers to one particular kind. Now, I want to ask you, do you do that? At least at times. Do you get into a habit of pure supplication? I do. Where it's just, Lord, I need this, and God, I I ask your forgiveness about that, and it's, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. All kinds of prayer. Also, thanksgiving. Or sometimes it's, supplication and thanks for ourselves, but not interceding on behalf of others. And we are called to all kinds of prayer. There's something else that's very clear here, and it's the context, the setting that Paul has in mind. If you were to closely examine verses 8 through 12, there is a setting that Paul has in mind, and it's not your closet. That's not to diminish the importance of praying in private. But the setting that he's talking about is corporate worship. Corporate means the coming together of the body, the group, exactly what we're doing here. The context here where he says he desires that men raise holy hands without wrath or quarreling. One does not usually quarrel by himself in his closet. The the idea here is of gathering together. He mentions how people are to dress. This is a corporate setting. And so, specifically, the Holy Spirit in this passage is calling us as a church to pray all kinds of prayer. There is the tendency, the temptation, I think, in all of us at different times, to want to shorten, to abbreviate, the kinds of prayers that we would pray together. The Spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there is historically, constantly, a temptation to abbreviate and abbreviate, to clip the wings of public prayer. And that is in me as well, to pray for three minutes and feel like I've been praying for a long time. You laugh, perhaps painfully, because it is in you as well. The flesh is weak. But the example that we find in Scripture of, for instance, in the book of Acts, of the apostles gathering to pray is certainly on the end away from three minutes. Now, I'm not making a case, making an apology here to have 40-minute congregational prayers. We also have the example in the New Testament and in the Old Testament of setting aside special days for prayer, evenings for prayer. But here we are encouraged to pray all kinds of prayer together as God's people. This then brings us to the second main heading, Look at me at verse 1. You'll see what we are called, or rather who we are called to pray for. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All people. Now, obviously, the apostle does not mean that in our worship services we are going to pray for each and every individual, let alone by name. It would be a very long service. That's not what he has in mind. 
And remember here, the context is corporate. In your private prayer, maybe you do have a list of every single individual in this church, though his meaning here goes outside of the church. And if you limit to the church, you're not getting what he's talking about when he says all people. The word all here could be more literalistically translated as every category, every kind. For instance, in chapter 6, in verse 10, you'd see this. The same term is used. You get a sense of how this word is meant. The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it doesn't mean each and every single evil in the world was caused by the love of money. Adam and Eve's fall was before there was money. All simply means all kinds, every category. And when we hear that we are to pray for all people, that means that there is no category of person that you could list out, no matter how diverse or bizarre in this world, which is not a proper object of prayer. Christ sets his eyes upon the whole world. Not simply those within the church, but those outside as well. Because here the context has to do with the desire for salvation. Christ's eyes are upon the world. You think, why is this instruction necessary? I doubt that there would be anyone who would stand up and say, we should not pray for the lost. And yet, the Holy Spirit recognizes a need to address this in the word. The words of the Bible are, Precious, it could only be so long without becoming gigantically unwieldy. Remember, John says in his gospel that if everything were written that Jesus did, it'd fill up all the books of the world. And yet, this is written. Why does the Lord want you to consider this morning the necessity of praying for all people? Perhaps it's tied in part to a, a sort of spiritual or moral elitism that can form at times in the professing church. Or you feel like we are better than others and they are not deserving of our prayer, which is to completely miss the gracious principle of the gospel. And yet it does exist at times. In Luke chapter 18, verse 11, Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee, a religious leader, who is praying before the Lord and says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's praying, but he doesn't pray for that tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector, says Jesus, says, Woe am I, and he receives forgiveness from the Lord. And so it's possible that a kind of elitism or any kind of centrism can form, but there's probably something else operating here, something more simple, and it's our pure forgetfulness of the people outside of ourselves. And I'll own before you, I have been guilty of this dozens of times. As I look back on our corporate prayers, the proportion of prayers that are for our members or for the church, and then I bypass other than Because it's very clear, pray for civil authorities. And so I do usually pray for that. But I miss the all, the all people. The people of our city, the people on our streets. The people who hate the church. 
the people who are struggling with all kinds of issues because the prayer here is not simply for salvation, get them saved so they'll be on our side, but simply blessing from the God who sends rain upon the just and the unjust. And that command is rooted in the Lord's mission. Look with me at verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Why does Paul insert this here? The argument is subtle, but it's very effective. There is one God and one mediator. Hebrews tells us he's a fit mediator because he's truly God and truly man. And so he's ideal to stand between God and humanity. If there is one God, God cannot be divided in purpose. God is united in purpose, Father, Son, and Spirit. If the Father sent his Son, as it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, all kinds of people. If he loved the world such that he would send his Son, and if his Son died as a ransom for all, as we read previously in 1 John, then surely in terms of how he orchestrates the means, he desires that we would pray for all. It's very simple. If he has an elect people that are taken from every tribe and tongue and nation, slave and free, all people, then we pray for all. There is no one that we should assume falls outside of his kindness to have us pray. You think of Peter's vision that he has in Acts chapter 10. He's on a rooftop and the Lord is preparing Peter to be receptive to the enfolding of the Gentiles. Remember, through much of God's covenant history with Israel, the Gentiles are outside. They have to convert ethnically and in all sorts of ways to fit in with the visible church. The Lord's preparing Peter and he shows him a vision of a sheet, as it were, coming down from heaven. And in that great big sheet is every kind of animal. And he tells Peter, rise, kill, eat. And the point is not about eating, it's about being receptive to those who were considered unclean. Under the Jewish economy, of course, you had only certain animals you could eat, the rest were unclean. And now the Gentiles are pictured as these formerly unclean animals welcomed in. And so God's saving purpose extends to all kinds of people. And out of that, I want to exhort you, in your prayer, intentionally, if you have to write it down until it becomes a habit, make a point to pray for all kinds. In fact, it's a wonderful devotional exercise. Say, on the Lord's Day, an ideal day for devotional exercises, just write down different kinds of people you can think of. You have to cut it off at some point. There's so many. And then once you've done that, just work through that as a prayer list for the next week or month to pray for those different kinds of people. But now finally, our third, our final heading is that we see we're called in this passage to pray for one kind in particular. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why does the apostle focus on these in particular? I invite you to turn with me to another passage, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes it clear what the reason is not. And it will be helpful for us to bear in mind why we don't pray for those in high positions. We have good reasons to pray for them, but this is not one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, the Holy Spirit makes it clear we don't pray for them because they are individually more valuable, deserving, or important in themselves. Verse 26, consider these words very carefully. For consider your calling. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. We're calling here has to do with the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, not just calling out, come if you want, but actually working and changing them. You'll see that in the context. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And he wants to make it clear that's not accidental. It's not that later on, once we have some really excellent preachers, then all the powerful people will make up the majority or it's not happenstantial that the weak make up the majority of the church. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's very clear Those who ultimately belong to the church, who participate in sanctification and redemption, are so because the Holy Spirit has called them effectually, has worked in them, has made Christ wisdom to them. Before that, it says in 1 Corinthians, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. And out of all the people God could have called, he has called primarily the low of the world. Why? Not because the rich were more guilty, it says, but to shame worldly wisdom. When Noah is told to gather all the animals into the ark, he's told to gather 14 of the lowly dove and only two of the golden eagle. God has similarly only gathered a few of the wealthy into his kingdom. And so it's not because they're more important. It's to underscore the principle of divine grace. Why then are we called to pray for these in particular. The first reason is pastoral. It's very practical. At that time, and probably the same is true today, when you think of the whole world, the majority, if not all, of the leaders were opponents, adversaries of the faith and of the church. Does your heart leap to pray for those who persecute you? For those who make Life for the church, very difficult. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
Paul and really the Holy Spirit understood that that church, as they faced persecution and a hard life for being a Christian, might forget to pray blessing upon those in power, to intercede for them, not simply to imprecate, imprecations, calling down wrath. Those do come pretty natural, I think, at times. But notice he even says pray and thank for those in authority, not simply thank for the blessings that come to us as a byproduct of the kind of government we have. Thank God for the people. Intercede for the people. And so it's pastoral. We have to remember as well that God's election does include some of the wealthy, some of the powerful. And it's not for us to presume against his grace. When I hear that some celebrity or some political person is now claiming to be a Christian, there is a temptation. Well, it's probably just doing that for attention, publicity. Kill it. Kill that thought. It does you no good. It doesn't benefit the kingdom to, you know, love hopeth all things. It does you no good to presume against the hope of salvation, but instead pray, God, Lord, raise up others who do love you and favor your church. Isaiah 60, verse 3 says, All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. There are some. Our own passage here says in verse 3, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look back on history. If you're not familiar, and especially you youth, Learn some history about people that the Lord did bring solidly to love him and in that way to bless the church. I think in our circles often comes to mind Abraham Kuyper, leader in the Netherlands, faithful Christian, and a great figure. But in our own country, some of those who were probably more faithful as Christians get forgotten. Someone like President Garfield. Does anyone know anything about President Garfield? I confess to you that the little I know, I learned this week. <laughs> and looking through, who, are the, who were the more devout presidents? Garfield is the only of our presidents who served as clergy earlier in his life, who was known for his preaching, who knew Greek. And then later on, somehow, he became a, a president. The Lord does raise up people who know him in high places. And so we can't be embittered to them. That's a pastoral reason, but then there's a reason that's practical. This is the second reason. Look at me at verse 2 and 3. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Practically speaking, providentially speaking, the church's welfare and the efficiency with which she carries out her mission is tied to whether or not people in authority are opposing the church, whether they blame the church for the ills of society, whether they are on the attack against the church. History is all too painfully clear about this. And here we're being called to pray for God to bless them. And in this sense, to bless them in such a way that they would be guided to show favor, even if they're not converted. One example from the past, Henry III of France. Henry III of France 
was radically opposed to Protestant Christians. He's considered, of all royal figures, the mastermind, the most involved of royalty in, in France and in that area of Europe at that time, uh, to be behind the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. If you're not familiar with that, the conservative current scholarly estimate, not among Christians, but just in general, conservative estimate is 25,000 Reformed Protestants were killed on the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And public worship was banned. And the education of children from that perspective was banned. In God's providence, after him, another person came to power, Henry of Navarre, Henry IV. Now he was not himself a Protestant. And yet he, I would credit the Lord, I think we should, had wisdom to show favor, and it was through him that the Edict of Nantes, a milestone in European history, was passed. The Edict of Nantes gave liberty to Reformed Christians to gather safely, to have the protection of law. We don't need it in one sense, but it sure is nice to not gather with such fear, as some do even this very day. And to have the right to not be harassed for teaching their children, having their own schools, These things don't just fall out of the sky. They are answers to prayer. And the Lord would call us this morning to pray particularly for those in authority for that reason. By way of conclusion, I simply want to exhort you. Remember, there are all kinds of prayer. Seek by God's help to become more balanced in how you pray. Not just supplication, also intercession. Add to that thanksgiving. But then especially, I want to encourage you, as it is the 4th of July... Make a habit, by God's help, of taking time, especially on these public holidays, Memorial Day as well, Veterans Day, thank the Lord and intercede for those in authority. I know that some of you are having gatherings today at your homes. I know others of you will do so tomorrow. I would encourage you to consider setting a time aside for prayer. Whether you divide these different parts of prayer or simply have one person pray, whether before the meal or otherwise. But then finally, remember the context here was about corporate prayer. Let us as a body ask the Lord to help us yearn and desire to pray all kinds of prayers, especially for those in power, but for all people in the context of our corporate prayer. Not to become that church that eventually just does away. You know, lots of churches just don't even have a congregational prayer. You're aware of that, that this is actually in the minority to have something like this? Yet here it is in Scripture. May God preserve that among us too. Let's ask his blessing even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our precious Savior Christ, that he not only died for us but was raised for us victorious over death. We thank you that according to your word, every knee shall bow. No conspiracy formed against him shall stand. We thank you that at his return, we will behold a great transformation. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the present time, you have placed us in the world to be salt and light, to work for the manifestation of your kingdom. We pray first that your kingdom would be manifested in ourselves 
that Christ's authority would be evident in the way that we submit to this command, to pray regularly for all. We pray that you would help us to intercede, to request, to give thanks. Heavenly Father, we take an opportunity even now to pray on behalf of our nation and those that you have placed in power. We wish to thank you for them. No one of them acts out the extent of what exists in the human heart, greed, vengeance, and pride. We thank you for the extent to which they do affect good in the world, for our president, our governor, our mayor, and all others. At the same time, we intercede on their behalf. Some of them know you, others do not. We ask that you, Lord, would show mercy upon them and also upon this land. We acknowledge, Lord, that the civil magistrate has at times countenanced in both law and practice the most extreme antisocial, self-destructive behaviors, acts which are not only forbidden by your word, but are against the plain light of nature. In certain respects, Lord, we grieve before you that they not only approve, but even celebrate evil in your sight and actively coerce others to participate. Your word is full of examples of bringing wrath upon not only individuals, but nations. We ask on behalf of our land, Lord, that you would stay your hand, that you would provide more time for your church to be about her work of making disciples, not to be hindered in any way. We pray that you would pour out blessing graciously. What we have, it's not as if we deserved, and you've done so much good. We pray that you would make us to abound for the blessing of others, not only of our land, but the world. That you would grant peace and wise leaders. We ask all of these things for your glory. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.